if you remember back, uh, let, let me say, let me go back to last week. Uh, there was a lot of texting and a lot of phone calls and a lot of conversations about the whole pruning thing. And I, l- let, me, let me say this about that is uh, I don't want to negate anybody's growth experience. Uh, I know that we grow and we grow through our circumstances and we grow through our pain and, and everything else, but in the context of what we were talking about in, in, in John chapter 15, verse 2 and 3, that really wasn't pertaining to us about being pruned. That wasn't about us because like we said back then, it was like, you're already clean. That word but, you're already clean. It wasn't about the disciples being pruned. It wasn't. That was, that was a message that was spoken to them. And so that whole pruning thing had to do with something else. And, you know, we can debate what that was or whatever, but uh, I don't want to negate anything that you, like, were shared on last Sunday because that's real. That's part of what we do as believers as we grow through the pain, through the suffering, through the circumstances, through the joys, and it's a real thing. So I'll say that and kind of drop that there. Uh, I taught First Peter chapter 1 back in December, the 1st of December, so I'm sure you still remember everything that I said about that uh, because I literally have to go back and look, look at what I said and what was actually written. And I'll say this, this was a letter that was written by Peter, and we don't have our projection. That was another thing that we found out this morning. We realized that the projector got stolen out of the trailer a few months ago. We don't use it on Sunday mornings because we use the TVs, but anyway, uh, we don't have a projector here today. But there was the map of all the churches up in the Galatia area that Peter wrote this letter to, and it traveled around. Like the Peter wrote the letter it was copied and copied and copied, which is where we get our manuscripts now, and it was to encourage the church. There was persecution that was going on from the Romans at that time. They were in charge, you know how that goes, and they were literally, not legally, not legally, but literally persecuting the Christians. And so Peter's trying to encourage them in their faith, and in chapter 1, he spends time talking to them about their identity in Jesus Christ. Imagine that. Telling them who they are. But at the same time, he kind of gives them instruction as how that plays out. What does this look like when you know your identity in Christ? And because of that, he said, one, set your hope. Do this. Set your hope about what is to come on Jesus The second thing he said, and this is the one that we always get stuck on, is be holy. Be holy, like, okay, I'm trying to be holy. No, it doesn't work that way. The the key word there is be. Just be. Figure out your identity and just be, and the holy will come, all right? It's nothing that we have to, like, really work at. And then he said another thing is conduct yourselves. How do you conduct yourselves? Again, he's giving them practical ways in the midst of this persecution. And the last thing that he says in that chapter is love one another. Just love one another. Okay, now we've caught you up. 
to chapter 1, and we're in chapter 2. In verse 1, he continues on. He says, therefore, and if there's a therefore there, you have to ask, what is it there for? And he's literally going back to chapter 1 and saying, because I've told you all these things, now think about these things. And he says, rid yourselves of all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all slander. So now, again, he's telling them what to do. He's, when he says, rid yourselves, he's literally saying, take this off. Like, you all are believers, you're, you're already clean, you're already clean, yet sometimes you experience malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander. And that's because we have these flesh patterns, these flesh patterns that we developed before we were a believer in Jesus Christ. And so we have a tendency sometimes to go back into those flesh patterns, those very selfish patterns, and act that way again. So he's literally addressing behavior that is proper for Christians. This is what it looks like. And here's what he doesn't do. He, it, this is the, he takes out the whole do nots. And he's literally saying, this is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. I encourage you as brothers and sisters in Christ to behave this way. And the key to that is the whole text prior to this section when he's reminding them of their identity. I take you to 2 Peter 1, verses 3 and 4. It says, his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Verse 4, by these he has given us a very great and precious promises so that through them you may share in the divine nature, the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. He's literally saying you have a new nature. Because you believed in Jesus, I took out your old heart, I put in a new heart, and I totally remade you it's natural for you to do good things it's natural for you to love people it's natural for you to be holy be holy to be set apart from the world that's a natural thing for you to do and this is all that he's saying in verse 2 he says like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Now, Peter, is, he's not talking about growing through Christian activity here. That's not what he's talking about. And when he literally says, desire the pure milk of the word, you know, sometimes they say you need to get off the milk and get into the meat. That's not what he is referring to here. He's literally saying, this is the nutrition that you need as believers in Jesus Christ. Dig in to the word. Dig into, well, you think about it. What word did they have back then? If he's literally writing this letter to the church, they don't have New Testaments. They don't have like smartphones. They don't have all this stuff. They don't, they don't have Bibles. So what's the word? The word was Jesus. Dig into Jesus. Dig into the word. Now, they did get letters from Paul occasionally that were 
transferred around and things like that, but for them to be able to sit there and study, remember this letter was not written to you, it was written to those churches, but you can sit here and apply this today and I would say to you as a pastor, get into the word, figure it out. You don't have to come here and have me or Matt or Phil or anybody else spoon feed you. You don't. You can literally dig into this thing and figure it out. That the gospel, it's pure. Keep it pure to, to read it, to study it. He says in verse 3, if you have tasted that the Lord is good. Matt, you always, like every Sunday, somehow step into my sermon notes. But the Romans 2.4, like, you have tasted that the Lord is good. We can talk about last week about how we thought, how we were taught that God prunes us, that something painful happens to us, that maybe even God does it or maybe God allows it or whatever it is, that let me tell you something, God is good. And he loves you. And it's through his kindness, it's through his kindness that leads you to repentance. As believers in Jesus Christ, we still have to repent. What does it mean to repent? It means to change our mind. That's it. I still sin. I still make bad choices. I still blow it. I get it. And so what do I have to do? I have to repent. I have to change my mind about it. Well, who causes me to do that? The Holy Spirit that lives inside of me causes me to do that. It's his responsibility to cause that change to happen in me. That's the beautiful thing about it. So believers, they've literally tasted God's kindness and we've been changed as a result. It is what causes other people to watch us and go, hey, I want to hang out with you. You're, you're different. You're different. Yeah, because God is a good God. And look what he's done for me. Verse 4, it says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by people but chosen and honored by God. Everyone on the planet looks at Jesus in one of two ways. You either see him as the most precious gift that is given to us, or he is the most offensive thing in the existence of the world. That's the only way that you see God. But Jesus... He's the same towards both group, that groups. That's what's crazy. Those that see him as the most precious gift and those who see him as the worst, Jesus still sees them the same way. He still treats them the same way. All creation literally points to him. And then verse 5, you yourselves as living stones. <laughs> He's... He's literally saying to the church, those who are believers, those who are believers in Jesus all over those churches, you're literally a part of the church. You're a living stone. If Jesus is the cornerstone, what's the cornerstone? The cornerstone is the one that they set the very first on top of the foundation, and it is the one that keeps everything straight and organized. Our God is a God of order, not chaos. And so, obviously, Jesus is the cornerstone, and then he says, guess what? You're a living stone. Every one of you that are sitting here are a part of that church, and Peter's trying to encourage them, hey, look, you're alive, and you're a part of this thing. It's a major deal. He says, you yourselves as living stones, a spiritual house, are being built to be a holy priesthood. 
oh, 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 wait a second. A holy priesthood, if he's talking to the Jews back then, remember what happened. There were only certain people that were priests. Only the Levites could be priests. That's old covenant. But now Jesus has come. Jesus has come, and he's died on the cross. He was buried. He rose again. And there's a spirit of God that's living inside of us, a whole totally new nature. And guess what? You sitting here are a priesthood. Because guess what? Where's the high priest? He's right here. Not me, but the Holy Spirit inside of me. I am holy, righteous, and redeemed. I am part of this holy priesthood now. So when he's saying this to the Jews, they're like going, what? We're a priesthood? How's that even possible? He says, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Peter was an apostle to the Jews and he's telling his fellow Jews that they're being built up into this holy priesthood. And they make spiritual sacrifices. What's a spiritual sacrifice? I would say anything that you do that comes from the strength of the Holy Spirit inside of you. Versus anything that you do out of your flesh and your own selfish desires. There's a difference. When his strength in me allows me to stand here and teach, when his strength in Dale allows him to come up and sing, it's him that's doing it through us. It's him that maybe helps you make dinner for another family. It's him. If you're doing that in your flesh, that's just sin. That's what it is. It's the only thing that we do as, as believers of sin is act out of our flesh. That's it. I don't do anything else, any other kind of sin other than my selfish flesh. Now watch this. Verse 6, it says, For it stands in Scripture. See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and honored cornerstone. That's out of Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. Oh, there we go again. God's kindness, his goodness. He doesn't condemn you. He's already forgiven you. He set you apart. He will not put you to shame. The gospel does not disappoint believers. Whatever we long for, we receive from God. He says in verse 7, So honor will come to you who believe. But for the unbelieving, the stone that the builders rejected, which is Jesus Christ, this one has become the cornerstone. He's quoting literally Psalm chapter 118, verse 22. God took Jesus, the one that was rejected by humanity, and made him the cornerstone of all creation. Jesus Christ. He is eternal life itself. It's a person. Jesus Christ is the foundation of Christianity. He says, verse 8, And a stone to stumble over and a rock to trip over. Isaiah eight fourteen. They stumble because they disobey the word. They were destined for this. You know, before creation actually occurred, 
The Trinity planned to save people through Christ. He planned this all along. God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit always was infinity past. And they plan to save people. They plan to share the love of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit with you, which is an incredible thought to think about. However, they also knew at that point who was going to reject them. They knew. They foreknew that you would be sitting here today. They foreknew that you would believe in Jesus. And they foreknow those who reject them. Verse 9, it says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. He's quoting Exodus 19, 5 through 6. A people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. I'll say this again. God's people are holy. We're not committing more holy progression or anything that. You can't be any more holy than you are right now. Why? Because he made you that way. It's not based upon what you do. That's important. That's important for you to know that because now all of a sudden he changes gears in verse 11. And watch this. He says in verse 11, Dear friends, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from sinful desires that wage war against the soul. He's literally avoiding or telling sinners and, and encouraging believers, encouraging believers to not sin anymore. I do that all the time. Like, literally, you have to say, you know, it's probably not good for you to do this. But along with that, guess what follows with that? Teaching them their identity in Jesus Christ. Like, I, I, I'm a firm believer. And you can go back to all the guys, Keith and and Big John and, and all the guys in the past, when this whole thing started, we literally said, do we have to tell the people how to behave? Can we, can we just, literally, can we just take the Word of God and teach the Word of God and trust that the Holy Spirit will teach them how to behave? Can, can we do that? We could have chaos on our hands if we don't give them a list of things of how to act and not to do and things like that. But can we really just trust, you know, and we, we took it so far as uh, we don't have to advertise, we don't have to promote, we don't have to put a big sign up in front of pinheads. Can the Word of God, can the gospel can the good news stand on its own? And based upon what you've heard this morning, from the first song to what Matt was talking about that's happening in all the basements around here and all the small groups and all the restaurants and everything else that's happening around here, the good news is being proclaimed by you. Because all you're doing is being holy just be this thing is not about church obviously we don't have a building we don't have a place to lay our head 
but the Lord again has provided for us. He's like, verse 12, conduct yourselves honorably among the Gentiles so that when they slander you as evildoers, they will observe your good works and will glorify God on the day that he visits. Because you are precious, because you are excellent, our behavior will most likely be excellent. If you can figure out your identity, if you can trust what it says here, all of a sudden your behavior begins to line up with who you truly are, and then the world sees it. He said, okay, here we go, get to a hard word here. Submit, verse 13. Submit, it's a word that this world hates right now, is to submit. Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority. Now remember, this is Peter writing about the Romans who were persecuting. They had a Roman emperor. Whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to the governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Submission to earthly rulers. <laughs> Here we go, right? We are in political season. Funny that we get to this verse the week of the Iowa caucuses. Uh, how do you teach that? Well, yeah, you teach what it says. It says submit to the authority that God put in control. I just said earlier that God is a God of order, not of chaos. And because of that, uh, we have to submit to one another. We have to submit all the time. I submit to my wife. She submits to me. I submit to the Fisher's police. I submit to those that are in authority. I'm submitting to Gary today. I submit all the time. Submission is not a bad word. It is actually directed from God. You can go all the way back to Genesis chapter 9 when uh, after the flood happened, Noah and his sons had that experience where they found him naked and all of a sudden he's like, you're going to be in charge of this family. It's like the first time that we saw like submission had to happen when the brothers had to submit to one another. So there's always been this order that God has placed. And then you go, okay, there's some evil people that have been placed into authority and things like that. How, 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 do, you, how do you deal with that? You, you're, talking about, you're talking about a Savior, a Messiah, who was killed by a government authority who laid down his life for us in the midst of the Roman Empire. Like, literally, they put him to death. You can say the Jews put him to death, but it was literally the Roman government that put him to death. And you go, okay, am I supposed to submit to our government? We have the perfect example. Verse 16, it says this, Submit as free people, not using your freedom as cover-up for evil, but as God's slaves. 
there's a spiritual freedom underlying Peter's word right here. There's nothing that can shake salvation of the Christian because I'm completely free in Christ. I'm free. There's no question about it. But I still have to submit. And when I do submit and when I behave properly, people take notice. And then they inquire about it. And it allows me to share the good news in the gospel. It says, verse 17, honor everyone, love the brothers and the sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. You, you won't ever see me talk about the government on Facebook or X or Twitter. I have my opinions, I have my feelings. I have truth, I have lies, I have all that stuff, but you won't see me do that. Because there's something that's more important about my testimony than my opinion about what the government is doing. Nothing good has come from mistreating people. Therefore, Peter's trying to save Christian time and energy. Don't waste your energy on this. In Timothy, Paul wrote, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1, Paul wrote to him and says, First of all, then, I urge that petitions, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all those who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. You think about it. I look back at the Old Testament and I see Daniel who had to submit to King Nebuchadnezzar, an evil man. And Daniel submitted on most everything, on most everything except for what? He wouldn't bow down to him. He wouldn't bow down to him. And he got locked up. But then what happened? Because of his testimony and because of who he was, he literally became a friend to King Nebuchadnezzar. I, you, you know that Daniel didn't agree with King Nebuchadnezzar, but come on. And then Nehemiah was like the cupbearer to the king. He was under the reign of Artaxerxes. And then Paul and Peter, they literally got told not to share the gospel anymore because it was causing this disruption in, the, in Israel and in the Holy Lands. Well, did they stop? No. No. Did they submit to the government? Yes. In all things, but teaching the good news. Continue to teach the good news. They didn't condemn the government. They didn't speak bad about them. But they continued to talk about Jesus. And then he says this in verse 18, he says, Household slaves, submit to your masters with all reverence, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the cruel. Hmm. For it brings favor. If because a consciousness of God, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. Peter's not asking believers to lead political revolutions here. Instead, he's teaching that Christian their importance of resting in their identity and just living and being holy has an impact on others. He says, For what credit is there if when we do wrong and are beaten, you endure it? 
But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Suffering is doing what is right and for the sake of the gospel. And this is what Jesus did for us. He literally suffered at the hands of those that were cruel to him for the sake of the gospel. Verse 21, it says, For you were called to this, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He's not, he's not encouraging believers to seek out pain here and suffering for being a Christian. There's plenty of pain and suffering that goes on without that. Peter's point here is, if we suffer, we're opposed to the ways of the world. It's literally what he's saying. Yeah, you, you will suffer because we don't agree with the world. In Titus chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Remind them to submit to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to slander no one, to avoid fighting, and to be kind, always showing gentleness to all people. That's it. Think about what you say about those who are in authority. And then we come to the end here. He's like, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Talking about Jesus. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Just as Jesus here, he trusted in his father unto death. He couldn't... He couldn't be responsible for all the things that were happening to him. But he's like, God, I trust you. Father, I trust you. Whatever happens right here, no matter how bad it gets. In verse 24, it says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. Huh. That we might live for righteousness. You are the righteousness of Jesus. Peter is speaking of the certainty of Christians' death to sin in Christ. Literally, you are righteous. The word might is not speaking of some hypothetical outcome. It's given us the ability to overcome sin. It says, by his wounds you have been healed. He's literally speaking of the spiritual healing which occurred for all of us in Christ Jesus. You have been healed spiritually. And verse 25, For we are like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Peter is literally communicating the importance of knowing our safety in God. God is our eternal shepherd. I can't predict what is going to happen in the next year. I can't predict what is going to happen in the next five years, ten years, twenty years. I can't. But I do know this. I have a God who sent his son to be my savior, to be my Messiah, and he came here on earth and he literally suffered greater, greater than I will ever suffer. Greater than I will ever suffer. So you may like look at your life and go, oh, 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 oh. But no one suffered greater than our Savior. I have a Savior that literally can sympathize with me. That loves me. That is kind. That is good. That is faithful. And I can't determine what's going to happen here on earth to me, to you, to whoever. But I know this. 
I trust him. I trust the word, the word being Jesus. I trust him. And all Peter is doing is just saying, just be, just be. You're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. I'm not saying you won't go through hard times. I'm not saying that you're not going to go a boatload of suffering. But you're going to be okay. Father, I pray that your word just comes alive to those that are sitting here and those that are listening at home. And I trust you. I trust you with your word. Your word being Jesus. Jesus, thank you for uh, just letting us sit in bleachers today and just being together as a body of, of Christ here today, the living stones, that we can uh, see each other face to face and hug one another and encourage one another. I just thank you for that, that you have once again provided for us. And I trust you. I trust you in Jesus' name to take care of us through our sufferings and our pain. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.